today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, guess what? There's something going on in the sky. That's a good excuse to get Paul Delaney on, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy, physics as well, York University. He is with us. Paul, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Indeed I am, Scott. Nice to be with you again. So we've got a, uh annual solar eclipse coming, but you got to get up to early to see this, I understand. True. Annular, actually, not annual. Annular. And, yeah, if this is a sunrise event tomorrow morning. Uh, everybody in Quebec, Ontario, Eastern Canada will be able to get a slice of the action. But the further north you go, the more interesting it becomes. So northern Ontario, northern Quebec, into none of it, they have the opportunity for the annular aspect of this eclipse. Expe- explain that word. <laughs> right. So solar eclipses come in a variety of flavors. Partial eclipses where only a portion of the sun's disk is covered by the moon. A total eclipse where the moon completely blocks out the sun. Or, as in the case tomorrow, an annular eclipse where the moon is just not big enough to cover the entire disk of the sun. So it sort of plots itself in the middle, leaving a small ring around the dark moon. And that's the so-called ring of fire or the annular aspect of the eclipse. So this could look a, a little bit like your vaccination shot or a tick bite even. Sure, we'll go with that, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sorry, Paul, it's the end of the show. Um, no so is there a good way to view this? Uh, do we have to be concerned about damaging our eyes? Is there oh, a right yeah. way, a wrong way? Yeah, 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 the moment you can see any part of the sun's disk, any part of the sun's surface, it's too bright for your eye, it's dangerous, period. You never look directly at the sun. So even though the annual portion will have 90% of the sun's disk covered, 10% is still there, more than dangerous to you. So no direct looking unless you have a, a, a pair of solar glasses. This is the sort that we saw very popular about three years ago. They're shiny mylar. They are rated for solar observing. If you have a pair of those that is absolutely rated for solar view, you can look at the sun with those. But most of us, of course, don't happen to have those lying around the house. So my recommendation is a pinhole camera. You know, create a, a piece of uh, you know, heavy stock and uh, cardboard, put a very, very tiny hole in it, hold that piece of cardboard up towards the, uh, the, the sun and project the image at your feet. So the job mm. looking through the pinhole, you're not looking directly at the sun, you're looking at the projection of the sun uh, onto the ground or onto a piece of paper in front of you. That's perfectly safe. And if you do that tomorrow morning at sunrise, you're going to see what first looks like a crescent moon, but it's actually a crescent sun for those of us here in southern Ontario. Wow. (laughs) So uh, obviously these events happen on a regular basis, um, uh, some uh, more often, some less often. Can scientists still learn from these events? Oh, eclipses of all flavors still have science value. It gives us an opportunity to probe, believe it or not, the moon's surface. It gives us an opportunity to probe our own atmosphere. And, of course, when you're blocking out so much of the sun's bright, what we call photospheric surface, it gives you a chance to look at the layers above the sun's surface, what we call the chromosphere and the corona. So any time there is an eclipse in action, the sun, the moon, and the earth all can benefit from it from a scientific perspective. So, yes, and we get a nice view to boot for those of us who aren't so interested in science. So is this something, will you be up tomorrow to look at this, Paul? 
I will be up for it. Uh, here in southern Ontario, it's going to be, as I said, about 80% of the sun's disc covered. So I'm actually going to be tuning into a website that will show me the path of annularity way up north because that's the real excitement. But uh, And also my eastern horizon really is terrible here. <laughs> uh, so you know, going outside, if you can, is certainly recommended because the wildlife can detect these very subtle changes in the illumination. And so it's really quite amazing to watch the birds and the other animal life respond to the changing level of illumination. Even though you and I may not be able to detect the change, because 10% of the sun's surface is still really bright, the, the uh, wildlife is able to detect it. Wow. So, what do, what, what, so, so uh, to them, it appear, well, what, what are they experiencing? Well, they get confused because, of course, yeah. they're, they're very... So the sun just came up. So basically the sun just came up and now it's dark again. Precisely, or at least getting dark. It's not going to right. get that dark tomorrow. As said, 10% of the sun's disk is still very, very bright. If it was total, it does go twilighty, and that's when the cows sit down and they think, oh, that was a short day, and they're off for, <laughs> for sleep. It really is an interesting uh, phenomena to be a part of an eclipse. A total eclipse is the piece of resistance, but uh, hey, an annual eclipse is pretty darn special too. So uh, can you give us an update on what's going on in Mars? We, you know, every so often we hear about what's going on up there and things have been launched and rolling around. Where are we now? Well, we know, of course, that there are now three rovers running around the surface, Curiosity and the most recent Perseverance from NASA. But China deployed its rover, Zurong, about, oh, I guess now a little over two weeks ago. And so it's on the surface as well. So, you know, we have three rovers on the surface, transmitting data, digging into the soil, drilling into the soil. Ingenuity, the helicopter, is on its extended mission. It just completed its seventh flight yesterday, and it's sort of scouting ahead of Perseverance, looking for the best, well, what they think might be the best rocks and the safest routes forward. So science has really stepped up now on the surface uh, of Mars. So will the uh, will will it, will one rover be looking for the other? I guess is my question. Will <laughs> especially when you have two different nations up there. Uh, no, we're thousands of kilometers apart. I mean, the total land area of Mars is comparable to the continental land masses of the Earth. So pick three places separated on the surface of the Earth, right. put down rovers and think, yeah, are they ever going to see each other? The answer is obviously no. Uh, these rovers will only in their entire lifetime travel a few tens of kilometers. The, the record at the moment is held by opportunity, 46 kilometers. When you're separated by thousands of kilometers, yeah, 46 kilometers ain't very far. <laughs> Does each country know what the other one is doing with its rover? Well, in large measure, yes. Uh, you know, NASA makes no secret of the science instruments that are on board. They are, generally speaking, international collaborations. There are a couple of Canadians who are working on some of the instruments uh, on Perseverance and Curiosity. So generally speaking, we know exactly what NASA is trying to achieve, how it is trying to achieve it with differing instruments on board Curiosity and Perseverance. Uh, it's a little less clear what China is up to. They have reported the instruments that are on board. Uh, and uh, within sort of the next six to 12 months, there will be published reports by scientists who are operating those instruments. But there's a bit more of a time lag, if you will, uh, coming out of the uh, Chinese space, uh, space agency. Uh, are we just to assume that they're both doing the same thing up there? 
Oh, heavens no. Uh, I mean, there, there is overlap, absolutely. Uh, but when all is said and done, every instrument has a very distinct purpose. And so you, know, you might be looking for organic molecules, or you might be looking for uh, you know, clay deposits. You might be sampling for methane in the atmosphere. You might be measuring the carbon dioxide ratio or the pressure variation that is taking place in the atmosphere. You know, there is so much science that needs to be done that every instrument really has a very particular focus. And so while you know, a camera is a camera, and so all are transmitting wonderful imagery of the surface and the clouds and the atmosphere, when it comes to the actual science that is being performed on the surface, there are distinct differences and distinct, uh, distinctly different foci associated with the, uh, both the scientists and their instruments. Uh, is uh, we, we certainly know what relationships are, are like with China now. Is it unfortunate we are not on the same page and working in unison? Well, in my opinion, yes. Uh, and I think that will be echoed by most of the science community. It, it, it's politics, obviously, which yeah. has uh, got the, the dividing lines there. Uh, but as I said, you know, within six to 12 months, the information that the uh, Chinese scientists have gleaned from the surface will be published in journals, which all of us are free to read. So in that regard, science does manage to transcend the political boundaries and, and the difficulties we face. However, as I said, it's a bit of a time delay. Yeah, we all saw, for example, the first flight of ingenuity. We saw live the landing of perseverance on the surface and so on. We were all holding our breath. And NASA has taken the attitude, you know, they, they live or die on the sword, so to speak. You know, they, they are there for the success and the failure. For the Chinese landing, we heard, we, we heard about its success uh, one to two days after the actual event. They said it's going to land sometime after the 19th, and it sort of went down a couple of days later. So it's not as open an environment, which, as I say, I think is unfortunate, but that's yeah, the way it is, I'm afraid. Uh, what about space tourism? Uh, that's been in the news this week as well. Oh, it certainly has. Jeff Bezos and his yeah. new Shepard uh, is planning to fly uh, maybe as early as this summer. Uh, there's been a wonderful rivalry going on between SpaceX, Elon Musk, and uh, Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos for the space tourist dollar, shall we say. And then go into that, Virgin Galactic and uh, Sir Richard Branson. He wants to fly into space before the end of the year as well. And they just completed uh, their second uh, flight into uh, low orbit uh, for you know, a brief period of time, only with their uh, only with their pilots. Uh, but uh, they are planning their first um, flight with passengers later this summer. So there's lots of action in the space tourism area. Something that we've been expecting now for the last decade. It looks as if 2021 is going to be the year where all three of these companies fly tourists into orbit. Wow, that seems incredible that that is that has arrived so quickly. Now, tell us a little, and we certainly have heard about how much money these people are paying to get up there. What is the flight? How long are they up there? What What is the experience that they're paying for? Well, each one of them is slightly different. Uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin are flying into what we call suborbital space. And so they, the passengers there will only experience something like 10 to 15 minutes of weightlessness the flight is between sort of like, you know, a couple of hours at the most. So in Virgin Galactic, you take off uh, like an aircraft. The rocket plane, Spaceship Two, gets dropped by the carrier aircraft. It rockets into orbit. It uh, has wonderful views out of the cabin. All of the cabins have been designed to give you panoramic views. You get your weightlessness, and then you fly back and you land like a space shuttle. 
in the case of New Shepard, uh, it's a vertical takeoff. It's much more of a traditional rocket launch, uh, and it eventually detaches from the rocket. The capsule flies into orbit again, suborbital, 15, 20 minutes, huge panoramic windows, and then it comes back through the atmosphere under parachute canopy and lands. When we're talking about SpaceX, they are actually an orbital experience. And so you will take off on the Dragon, uh, sorry, you'll take off on the Falcon. The Dragon will then go into orbit. It'll stay in orbit for three or four days, potentially longer. But the first one in September, the Inspiration flight, will be in orbit for three or four days uh, for passengers. And then they will re-enter and come down in the ocean under parachute canopy. Uh, so very, very different experiences, very different price tags, uh, you know, uh, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin reportedly a quarter of a million dollars, give or take, uh, whereas for the uh, 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 the Dragon orbital experience, that is probably closer to $10 million. But again, you can't find wow. these figures <laughs> readily hmm. available. <laughs> wow. I wonder if it will be sponsorship on the side of the craft. Uh, this is still dangerous, is it not, Paul? I mean, these are still experimental crafts, are they not? There is... There is certainly a significant element of risk associated with it. Uh, But we've reached the point where you've got to say that the risk is is manageable. When we fly uh, Falcon 9, for example, that vehicle has launched now something like 120 times. And it has had, depending on how you want to define success and failure, it's had two catastrophic failures. So two out of 120, you know, it's, it's flying with a 99% success rate or, or pretty close to it. The new Shepard uh, vehicle from Blue Origin has flown now very successfully, something 15 to 20 times, has never had a failure. Uh, whereas over with Blue Origin, uh, sorry, with um, Virgin Galactic about five years ago, they did lose their very first spaceship too, and they killed one of the pilots. So there is risk associated with any of these uh, endeavors, but I think you'd have to say that all of the uh, preparations that have gone into the flights that are upcoming have really been intense, and every possible um, protective measure has been taken. So I, I don't I don't know what, how people how comfortable people will feel with that, but there are lineups on all three vehicles. So there are a lot of Mm. people out there who've got confidence that this really is a safe, once-in-a-lifetime experience. Paul Delaney with us, space exploration expert, professor of astronomy and physics, York University, talking about all things uh, space-related, including Eclipse. Paul, thanks for the time, as always. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care, Scott. Cheers. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the first break. We're going to talk about COVID-19. And look at this. It's uh, after 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And that is good news, let me tell you. Uh, but poor Thomas keeps getting bumped back, it seems. Uh, we're seeing, uh, we will see an easing of COVID-19 hotel quarantine isolation rules uh, if you have been fully vaccinated. Uh, as well, talking about fully vaccination uh, for people in order uh, to help ease border restrictions. Let's bring in Thomas Tenkate, professor of the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, and with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yeah, doing very well, thanks, Scott. How are you? I I'm good. Th- yeah, so far, so good. Uh, numbers down to 411 new cases. Uh, this is the lowest since September. Pretty, uh, pretty exciting news there, Thomas. Yeah, yeah, definitely, you know, I've been tracking the data there and, 
is definitely continuing on the downward slope. Uh, so that's really good news. Uh, you know, the, the daily number, as you said, is in the 400s. The seven-day average is a bit higher, but uh, overall the trend is continuing in a downward slope and, you know, we're not seeing any sort of little bumps and upticks. So, so yeah, uh, things are going really well. So with that, we're seeing the uh, lifting of hotel quarantine uh, stays uh, for those that are traveling. Your thoughts on this? Has this been a successful program? Uh, my sense is that the the hotel quarantine overall hasn't been very successful. Uh, when you look at other countries where they've had it, they've also had trouble, uh, you know, problems with uh, you know, localized outbreaks and difficulties with uh, security and, and controlling people once they're there, but also controlling uh, interactions of uh, people not under quarantine with those uh, who are in quarantine. So, so overall, you know, my sense is that it's probably better to quarantine at home than quarantine in a uh, quarantine hotel. So, so yeah, anything that they can do to uh, remove that requirement, I think, will uh, work out well for everyone. And now, uh, obviously, this is due to the vaccination rates, and those that are fully uh, vaccinated with two doses uh, don't have to do this, can isolate at home. Are we ready for that in your view, Tom? Uh, yeah, yeah, I definitely think so. If, if uh, you know, people can show that they have uh, both doses, then, uh, you know, this, as well as a whole range of other measures are, uh, and options, are really much more available to us. So, so definitely... Uh, you know, it's really an encouragement for people to to get their second dose as quickly as they can, uh, and and so so yeah, definitely with with uh, with with having the second dose, you know, you're you're fully vaccinated, you you have the most immunity that you you have, and so so it means that uh, you know you're 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 well protected, but uh, it doesn't mean that you still can't potentially transmit it to someone else, and so so that's why they want you to. Uh, you know, still have the, uh, the isolation for a few days after after uh, you know having having a test, and if you come back negative, then then you're good to go. Obviously, this has led to more uh, discussions uh, about the borders reopening. We know that there's been discussions between Canada and the U.S. on this for a few weeks now, trying to figure out what happens next and where they go from here. Uh, the Prime Minister has said uh, and thrown out that uh, uh, the, it, people coming in from the U.S. need to be fully vaccinated. Uh, those in Canada, I think it's 75% with one, 25% with two. Then the borders can open. Your thoughts on this, or should it wait till uh, we are all fully vaccinated, or will we ever be fully vaccinated? Well, well definitely with the numbers, the way they're going, it will still be quite a while before we're fully vaccinated, as in a while, you know, a number of months. But the question is, you know, can we can we wait that long? My sense is that that uh, you know, uh, for for sort of non-essential travel, uh, I, I would say, yeah, why why not wait until there is that higher level of of uh, fully vaccinated individuals in the community? But but you know, once once the you know numbers are, are starting to climb up a bit. It does give a bit more options, and, and uh, I think it can you know, start to think about easing some of the restrictions, and, and particularly the restrictions, or you know, having different restrictions for you know flying versus coming over on a land border. I, you know, I think think that you know there's opportunities there to you know have consistency in the approaches and to uh, you know 
start uh, allowing uh, some some easing on on the restrictions. Uh, what about waiting until the U.S. are fully vaccinated? Is that too much of a a benchmark to to uh, demand of the U.S. Considering we're only looking at seventy five first dose, twenty five second dose, uh, and also uh, they seem to be lagging a bit uh, when it comes to, uh, to to continuing on with uh, certainly the the rate of vaccination that they were at the beginning of all of this. Um, or, or maybe it will work as incentive to, to get the people in the U.S. Uh, vaccinated so they can come to Canada. Where, where do you see that? Yeah, yeah. Like, like ideally, we're, we, uh, we're wanting uh, people to be, be fully vaccinated, so having the two doses. The, the issue of, you know, what, what uh, threshold do you uh, allow, you know, second dose percentage to, to you know, ease restrictions is, is a difficult one. Uh, but but I think uh, you know, like you said, the U.S. Uh, are lagging a bit behind. They really uh, you know ramped up their first doses, but are having you know sort of trouble getting the the, uh, the, the second doses uh, moving up. Uh, and and that's also going to be you know the challenge in in Canada. Uh, but but you know with uh, increasing supply uh, and and you know goodwill and, and people really. Uh, you know, uh, in, you know, encouraged and uh, excited about getting the second dose. I think that we we can uh, move forward in the next you know months and six weeks to to see a, a real change. So so, but overall, uh, you know, if you think about uh, you know the reasons why the the restrictions were in place, my sense is that uh, you know to hold off as long as you can and uh, to ensure that the the second dose percentage is as high as possible would would be the way to go. Uh, vaccine passports inevitable? Uh, yeah, there, I, I think that that some form of uh, you know, government sort of uh, approved uh, vaccination coverage uh, documentation would would be uh, advisable. We, we've seen uh, you know many people being found to to have uh, you know false documents uh, already and so so definitely going to uh, you know some sort of uh, like you say vaccination passport or 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 you know the you know people already have uh, vaccination records and 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 sort of uh, requiring people to travel with those records is you know is another approach uh, uh, we're hearing uh, news that Manitoba is going to announce a lottery system in order to get people more interested in vaccination. Uh, if you're vaccinated, you are entered into this. Your thoughts on on these sort of incentives? Like, yeah, from from a public health perspective, you know, I'm I'm open for uh, any any options that really encourage people to to get their uh, second dose. So so you know, if that, if that's what hap- if that's what uh, encourages people yeah why, why not uh do you think this is a case of uh do you think it'll move anybody off the fence i guess tom is what i'm saying here are, are, are these people that will be entered into the lottery people who would have just gotten in anyway yeah like like really we're at the point particularly for the first dose that uh you know we're we're in the in that stage where people who haven't got their first dose already are probably going to be people who are uh, pretty cautious and are really not wanting to get the not wanting to get their first dose. Uh, so so you know increasing the number uh, higher maybe up to the you know eighty or you know eighty five percent 
is probably going to be, uh, you know, that that level is probably what we what we'll end up having. But but it's still going to take a lot to be able to get that. And so so in a lot of ways, we're really trying to encourage people who who have got their first dose to get their second dose and to and to try and get them to have their second dose, uh, you know, earlier than what the original schedule was. How concerned are you with the race against variants and that second dose? Yeah, the the variants and uh, are, you know continue to be of concern, and and the the latest one, this this Delta variant, uh, you know, is based on all the information that's coming out from overseas, is uh, you know much more transmissible, and so so it means that uh, without being fully vaccinated, people. You know, are are at are at risk, uh, even though the the risk is lower because of uh, the you know, having the first dose. So so definitely uh, a driver to to have uh, the you know fully vaccination fully vaccinated people is is uh, is is this is issue of uh, of uh, the variants. And and my sense is that you know the, this uh, Delta variant will start to take over. As it has in other countries, and, and will become more dominant, or the dominant uh, variant within you know, within the next few weeks. So, so it's uh, so from that perspective, it's it's really important to uh, to to have uh, people fully vaccinated uh, as quickly as possible. Thomas Tenkate with us, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health, Ryerson University, talking about hotel quarantine and moving forward with vaccinations. Thomas, thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, thanks very much, Scott. Have a great day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.